Okay, we're going to get started if you want to have a seat, including my girlfriend. (laughs) Just a little uh, anecdote about last week's uh, Michael's teaching on 1 Corinthians and his introduction and then my introduction today. Um, about six weeks ago or whatever I started studying for Galatians I, I thought of Paul's first statement and I thought boy that was hard and how do you make that personal so I thought of an illustration of if J.D. would say something like that to us today and uh, I wrote it in my notes and was ready to continue and Last week I come in and Michael is teaching in Second Corinthians and I sit down and he starts out with an illustration about J.D. And I'm going, you know, I knew that and I'm excited that scripture is all tied together and I find that more and more how it all connects. But I didn't know it would actually come into illustrations for a Sunday school class. So, uh, but you'll find out that it did. So let's pray and then we'll get into Galatians. Father, this morning we're really grateful for a couple things. One is you being our God. That's just plain wonderful. And you offered us salvation. And that's even more wonderful. And then you decided to write a book about you and what you offer to the whole world. And you wrote it down in black and white so when we forgot or if we weren't interested earlier in life that we can sometime come to it and see what you said. And today as we look at one of the parts that you wrote, I pray that we would hear just what you said and that this week would be a bit different in our behavior because we've heard from you. So we pray this in your name. Amen. Suppose the year is 2027, and our previous pastor, J.D. Summers, has come back to lead us in a week of conferences. After having become an itinerant pastor in the northwestern states for the past three years, after a couple of days of teaching and particularly having meals and time with us as individuals and small informal groups, he heads back to his church in New Jersey and immediately writes us a letter. This letter intended for all of us is, of course, sent to us in an email first thing Monday morning. And it starts out like this. To my dear friends in Lawrence, grace to you from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm extremely surprised and disturbed about our time together last week. Seems like you've completely forgotten and lost touch with what we had held together as sacred. And talking with many of you, seems like you've been inviting a wide variety of different popular speakers in on some Sundays, and many of you have been a bit enamored with what they had to say, even to the point of asking them to come back repeatedly and do more teaching. 
even seems like you've actively welcomed him to stay. I'm extremely disappointed in this turnaround, both with the deacon team and with you as former faithful followers of Christ. Let me get right to the point. Let those false infiltrators be eternally condemned. I pray that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Sincerely, Pastor J.D. Summers. Just thinking up about that and writing it kind of gave me the shudders. Certainly because of our intense love for Pastor J.D., but also that scenario was, wasn't just on paper. It really happened in actual life in the life of the churches in Galatia. How can that be? I don't know, but once it did in real life and due to sin, it could happen again right here in River City. This is not a sermon, but it is certainly intended to be a reminder of what Pastor J.D. has been teaching us from Luke regarding the potential dangers of pride and arrogance. We need to take heed, lest we fall. So now that you fully realize that my first three minutes this morning were purely an illustration, a warning, an introduction, and not actually happening here today, let's get on with the letter to the churches in Galatia. Obviously, there comes to mind several questions as we start looking at this New Testament book. Who really was Paul? Where was Galatia? What's this big confrontation all about? Who or what caused this seemingly sudden commotion? Obviously serious enough to address in a very, very intense letter. We've been hanging, who have been hanging around the churches for much of our lives have certainly heard of Paul. We may perhaps even studied many of his writings and at least minimally acknowledge his presence. In fact, many of us probably hold him up too highly. Based on all his writings, we might even unfortunately rank him up there with Jesus. But back in the day, I mean back in the day, first century AD, in terms of Christianity for a while, Paul was the new kid on the block. He happened to be born about the same time that Jesus was, but certainly under vastly different circumstances. Ironically, he and Jesus spent much of the first part of their lives as tradesmen. Jesus as a carpenter and Paul as a tent maker. That was their vocational job. But their real heart issue was that of proclaiming the truth. <clears throat> Jesus and his growing team of followers went about explaining who he was and to carry out the will of his father. Early on, Paul was not on that team. In fact, he was the violent captain of the other team. He confesses many times to his persecuting followers of Christ. He was born in Tarsus and raised in a strict Jewish home, even being educated under Gamaliel and trained the Jewish law. As Paul later wrote from prison in Rome to the Christians at Philippi, chapter 3, if anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Anybody here match that? Needless to say, the early Saul was not a follower of Jesus. It wasn't until probably three, four to five years after the crucifixion that he miraculously met the risen Lord. Ironically, it happened in about 34 AD while Saul was on his way to Damascus with something less than spiritual proclamation on his mind. Acts 9 gives us details of the earlier writings to the Galatians. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He even went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Who are you, Lord? Seems like he'd already answered the question. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go to the city, and you'll be told what you must do. A few verses later, and after three days of blindness, Saul is introduced to a disciple named Ananias, whom the Lord had called in a vision. Go, this man Saul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That gives us some idea of the contrast, the lifestyle, at least initially in the journey between Saul and Jesus. Over the past few weeks, both Michael and Kerry have taught on the Gospel of John and Romans and shared a bit of who he was as a person and his purpose for writing the Gospel of John and, and then Romans. John, obviously, was one of the locals, a fisherman who was one of the sons of thunder. But at least he had a routine, full-time job, and certainly not a violent threat to followers of Jesus. His purpose was to encourage men and women to believe, not the opposite like Saul. John had been personally invited by Jesus while on the job to come follow which he did immediately. His style and personality was one of tenderness, even referring to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Then there's the opposite, according to Acts 9, who breathing out threats of murders was also called by Jesus, but under totally, totally different circumstances. Saul did not come to be a follower of Jesus willingly. He did not spend three years following Jesus or sitting under his teaching with either the 12 or the 70, or even the crowds. He was not one of the original disciples. Even after his conversion initially, he could only be trusted to enter Jerusalem when he was accompanied by Barnabas due to his dangerous reputation. That's the initial version of this man that God called to later write a letter to the Galatians. Next question. So where's Galatia? Originally named Galatia is derived from the barbaric Gauls who settled in Asia Minor, which is now a modern Turkey. Under Roman rule, the southern part of Galatia is the area that Paul became familiar with, as recorded in Acts 13 and 14. 
On his first missionary journey, Paul, Barnabas and Paul had established four churches, Antioch, Iconium, Lestria, and Derbe, which apparently seemed to have joined as a regional body of believers. Nowhere in the book of Galatians are we, do we find these four specific churches mentioned, but the fact that in the book of Acts we find these four churches established by Paul gives us reason to believe that that's who Paul is writing to. The very first verse of the first chapter identifies Paul as the author. In terms of dates, it does seem to be his very first, probably in 48 or 49 A.D., shortly after his first missionary journey. Since he makes no mention of the council, uh, the meeting in Jerusalem, that big, heavy-duty issue, he w- which is referred to in Acts 15, and it was held in AD 50, so that would confirm the 48 or 49 dates. The purpose of the book comes out loud and clear in the very first chapter. Somebody had apparently left the back doors of the church open, and the riffraff had come in by the droves. Judaizers had infiltrated the church and were perverting the gospel of Christ, as well as attacking the authority and credibility of the Apostle Paul. So Paul responded to that situation by writing a letter to the Galatian churches. His first purpose was to defend his apostolic authority. And secondly, he wrote it to convince them of the truth, that salvation is by faith alone. Man is saved by faith. That's justification. And he lives by faith. That's sanctification. And finally, he wrote to correct some erroneous legalism and defend the concept of Christian liberty. The overall theme is Christian liberty. Simply put, we are justified by faith and faith alone. We who have received Jesus Christ as our personal Savior have been set free, not just a freedom from something, but a freedom to something. Specifically, we Christians are set free from legalism, a set of mandatory rules and regulations and freed to live up by that faith, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So now that we've identified who was used to write this book and about the time Paul wrote it, and listed its main purpose and theme, let's look at the outlines of Galatians. The first two chapters are rather personal. It's a church crisis and its defense. Chapters 3 and 4 deal with the doctrine of justification by faith, and chapter 5 and 6 deal with the practical life of Christian liberty. As I started today's teaching with the make-believe illustration of Pastor J.D.'s imaginary letter to us in the distant future, rest assured that this letter of the Apostle Paul in about 48 A.D. to the churches in Galatians was not make-believe. It was real. And it was necessary, and probably not written with a lot of joy, nor received in an exciting worship time. It had to be excruciating, but it had to be. The spiritual condition of those four churches was deteriorating quickly, not by accident or simple misunderstanding. There was an act of premeditated spiritual murder an inside job, the potential killing of this section of the body of Christ 
The immediate crisis was that of infiltration by Judaizers. They were characterized by four specific traits. First, they appeared to be professing Jewish Christians who claimed some kind of inside ownership to the church in Jerusalem. Chapter four, verse, uh, 2, verse 4 says, This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Jesus Christ and to make us slaves. Second, they taught that the Gentiles could not be justified Christians unless they were circumcised according to the Mosaic law. In other words, circumcision was the only interest, entrance into a lifestyle of Christianity. Third, these Judaizers used the Old Testament on which they based their whole teaching. Since the Abrahamic covenant was one of their favorite passages and circumcision was part of that, they believed that Christianity was not possible without the indispensable act of circumcision. And fourth, these Judaizers discredited Paul's apostleship saying his authority was purely derived from the Jerusalem apostles and therefore potentially corrupt. The letter to the churches in Galatia is his only letter written to a group of churches. All others were either to an individual, church, or a person. And he comes out strong. Some may question his first sentence as it may seem a bit defensive. True, but defensive. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. This first line is designed to immediately correct the source of his marching orders. He was sent directly by Jesus Christ and God the Father. It didn't even include the laying on of hands of fellow disciples, simply the direct word of the Lord. His second line was what I would describe as cool, calm, and collected. Not his up-close and personal, typical introduction. No warm fuzzies was usual, as usual for him at this point. His intentional exposure of their deflection from the gospel of grace obviously came out in his introductory statement. Then comes verse 6. That was his real heartfelt intention. One of admonishment. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ, turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. What part of that do we not understand? This was written to Galatia, but it's meant for all of us. Even Timothy, who was well-trained by Paul, was told in 1 Timothy 4, verse 6 and 7, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness is value for all things. Holding promises for both the present life and the life to come. Three times in those two verses, he uses godly or godless. Paul's purpose in the book of Galatians was to reestablish the gospel, which had apparently been deserted and traded in for a different gospel. In order to correct this and to present the true gospel that he had originally taught them, 
He had to initially defend his apostolic authority, which the Judaizers has completely discredited. Chapter 1, verse 11, he states, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel that I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught. Rather, I received by revelation from Jesus Christ. He continues in verse 16. I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. It was important to Paul that for the sake of the gospel, his training and teaching was not an online six-week crash course certified through the Institute of Previous Apostles. It was necessarily a supernatural calling, an intimate time of revelation from the Lord himself. Incidentally, that was the second miraculous meeting with the Lord, the first being his conversion. This was not a new concept that God came up with suddenly on the Damascus Road. Sinful man has never been what modern churches have come to call a seeker. Jesus said in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you because you were and appointed you to bear fruit. Or even back in Deuteronomy 7, Moses was telling the Israelites, The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, David was very aware of God's methods when he said to the Lord, the God of Israel chose me from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. So too, Paul knew how and why he was chosen by the Lord in such a miraculous and personal manner. He was plenty aware of Jesus' calling and concentrating for almost three years in his teaching of the other apostles. And then there was the Lord's select method for him. And yes, they were different. As I further studied some of Jesus' methods of calling and training Paul, which was so drastically different from the method he taught the other disciples, I was a bit initially confused, since I tend to think primarily in terms of chronology. Uh, that wasn't fitting. So it was helpful when I found in a page in Mr. Benware's survey of the New Testament. Thank you. Uh, Paul was attempting to demonstrate two issues. First, that his theology was not formed by any contact with other men, the other apostles in particular. And second, that his doctrinal system was developed before his public ministry began. I'm going to quote Mr. Benware as he listed eight chrono chronological steps in Paul's training for the ministry in this order. <clears throat> First, Saul of, of Tarsus met the risen Lord on the Damascus Road in Galatians 1 and Acts 9. After a few days in Damascus, he spent several years in Arabia in Galatians 1. After returning from Arabia, Paul preached in Damascus for a short time, also in Galatians 1. Forced to leave Damascus, he went to Jerusalem, but spent only 15 days visiting Peter and James, as well as preaching in Acts 9. Because of a plot against his life, Paul fled to Tarsus, where he spent about seven years. 
Seems like Jonah tried that one too. He was brought to Antioch of Assyria by Barnabas to help teach the word of God to the church there in Acts 11. He, along with Barnabas, brought gifts to help the church at Jerusalem in a time of famine. They also met privately with the apostles in Galatians 2. And then he went to Galatia on the first missionary journey in Acts 13. And even though his method of calling and training was different from the apostles, he still recognized the importance of a unified gospel, a consistent proclamation, and a love for the brethren. Ephesians 4, verse 5 and 6 states, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So in chapter 2, verse 1, we read that 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. His purpose in meeting with the apostles was to confirm their joint proclamation of the gospel, particularly in regards to his message to the Gentiles. This was very important so that it would, it would prevent a possible split in the church and an opportunity for the apostles to formally approve of Paul's preaching. And they did. Chapter 2, 7 says, They say that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the Jews. So we've seen in chapter 1 of Galatians that Paul initially had to defend the source of his message. He got it directly from Christ through special revelation. And as we come to chapter 2, we begin to deal with the content of his message, which centered on the concept of keeping the law as a requirement for salvation. On the streets of Lawrence, it seems like our major discussed arguments revolve around political terms like uh, conspiracy theory, racism, woke, Marxism, far right, and the list goes on. In Paul's day, the terms were circumcision, Jewish, what's for supper, and Gentiles. For the church at that time, it was very important to be one in the faith, both Gentile and Jew. So Paul takes a trip to Jerusalem to help settle those issues of circumcision and law-keeping as requirements for salvation. Paul even confronts his co-minister Peter publicly over the issue. Chapter 2, verse 11, he reads, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived here, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The truth is, in verse 16, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The rest of the book of Galatians concentrates on the doctrine of justification by faith, not by works. As we have so, felt, so well demonstrated in our own personal lives, there's a vast difference between justification by faith and attempting to prove ourselves okay 
by good works. In fact, there's enough difference for us to spend eternity either in heaven or hell. So what's justification? The term justify is a legal term used in courtrooms, meaning to declare righteous. The judge who has a legal authority makes a decision based on all the evidence and pronounces his verdict of not guilty, acquitting the prisoner who then may go free. Out of the courtroom in our spiritual life situations, there's a very distinct additive. God doesn't just arbitrarily declare us righteous, but does so purely on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Paul argues in chapter 2, 15, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one's going to be justified. The Apostle Paul further states in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In chapter 3, Paul confronts them by asking a very direct question. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Then in verse 6, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would get that foresaw way back to Genesis. That scripture would, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, a man of faith. We may have the question, if the law is no place in salvation, then why did God bother giving it? Years ago, I came upon Psalm 119 in a small group one night. I don't remember the verses, but it says, had I not been afflicted, I would not have known the laws of the Lord. Had I not been afflicted, I would not have known the laws of the Lord. That basically told me that I got a $50 speeding ticket so that I'd know why that 30-mile-an-hour speed limit sign was posted. It meant something. Romans 3.20 spells out, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of sin. So the law, first of all, defines sin, and it also reveals the righteousness of the requirements of God. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul uses an illustration from Roman history to demonstrate the purpose of the law. The pedagogue, or the tutor in Roman society, was an adult, often a well-educated slave, who taught, disciplined, and protected the child until he became old enough to be considered an adult by his father. At that point, the pedagogue lost his authority and jurisdiction over the child. Paul stated that the law was designed by God to be temporary until Christ came. But now that God had declared believers adult sons of his, 
The law no longer had jurisdiction over the believer. Paul was pleading with his Galatian brothers who were being falsely led astray. Why do you want to put yourself under the pedagogue or the tutelage of the law? Please enjoy the newfound freedom in Christ. Galatians has been called both the Magna Carta of Christian liberty and the Christian Declaration of Independence. Paul begins chapter 5 with, It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. In other words, if that rule of circumcision stands, so does every other potential rule. That would seem to rule out any sense of hope for most of us. The Old Testament certainly addresses those issues. In Leviticus 16, we find the ceremonial day of atonement. After a lot of preparation, verse 5, Aaron was to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He's to cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. He's to lay both hands on the heads of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the people. I can just imagine the scene. His dad is taking his eight-year-old son out to watch and to learn, how does this work? On the way back, the little boy says, Dad, didn't we do this last year when I was seven? Uh Uh-huh. Dad, didn't we do that two years ago when I was six? Uh Uh-huh. So, Dad, doesn't that work? The hard answer to that sincere question was no. Ultimately, it didn't. That's why Jesus Hebrews 10 verse 11 reads, The day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices for sins, which can never take away sins. But when the priest, Jesus, had offered for all, all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he had made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Freedom in Christ requires more than rules of circumcision and an annual trip to the goat send-off. The issue of rules is certainly shown in the book of Judges as it exposes the heart of man. Chapter 17, 6 says, 
and you've heard it before, every man did what was right in his own eyes by their own rules. Or in chapter 2, verse 11, and the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They both say the same exact thing. In fact, that's quoted eight times in the book of Judges. But was worse, they apparently weren't even looking for circumcision or any other scriptural laws. They viewed themselves as above the law. Based on man's forever disobedient sinful nature, it's obvious that we are desperate in need of a savior. First for repentance and forgiveness, and then in need of learning the joy of what Paul is emphasizing here in Galatians. True freedom in Christ. Chapter 5, 6 is a clear declaration of Paul's heart. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then he gives a caution in verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He boldly lists the drastic differences in man's behavior in verses 19 and 22. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. You may want to put your hand over your ears while I read those. Then he bluntly lists them. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like, Can we go any further? I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then there's that wonderful list. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Of those, he specifically ends the sentence. Against such things, there's no law. Notice earlier in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Referring to the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, he says, there is no law. Now that's freedom. I recall many years ago laying on the living room floor many nights, Connie will remember that, listening to cassette tapes and taking notes from a man by the name of Stuart Briscoe, uh, who had a pastor to church in Elmbrook, Wisconsin over 30 years. I still have those cassettes and those notes on the series of Fruit of the Spirit. I'll give you a couple of definitions that he gave for some of that fruit. Patience. The handling of anger properly. Goodness. Robustly, ruggedly, red-bloodedly doing the will of God. Faithfulness. A consistent commitment based on an intelligent decision and experience daily. Meekness, a conscious decision not to assert yourself. Some have tried to organize these individual virtues into neat little packages without any success or even any reason to attempt that. They were never meant to be separate, unrelated, pseudo-personality qualities 
but rather all spiritual expressions of the same fruit, all produced by the Spirit. Incidentally, they're not just some extra benefits or side effects of being saved. They're all commands of believers in the New Testament. Galatians 5, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Ephesians 4, put on a heart of patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. 2 Timothy 2, do not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. And then he continues listing the commands of all the other fruit of the Spirit. But these are not simply results of commands or even involvement in busy things that we saw Martha involved in a couple of weeks ago in Luke 10. These are items that Jesus described as chosen what is better. Not a result of the law, but of freedom. One of the examples of how this works is found in our, our own very own families. We as parents attempt to raise our children in the ways of the Lord. Part of that child rearing involves examples by us as parents. Some involves teaching godly reading and sharing the word discussions. Some involves just plain hard and fast rules. Laws about curfew, where to spend time, school attendance, work responsibilities. These are all natural consequences of living within your family and under your roof. Eventually there comes a day that each child grows up and emancipates either for work or college or marriage. He or she is no longer under your roof. The laws are no longer in effect. This begins a time of freedom, either freedom from or freedom to. These are frequent, frequent moments of anticipation, expectation, or trepidation, both for the parent and the child. Have the training, the years of maturation, and the working of the Spirit been sufficient for them to live the new lifestyle? Paul's encouragement for us at Redemption Hill is simply, the just shall live by faith. Together we have a united mission, as stated in chapter 6, 9. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we has, have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. I'm now dismissed for a little bit before we come back for communion and worship. <clears throat>